All right, well, good morning. We're back in the book of Romans this morning, and we are in chapter 7, and we're slowing down again. I know that's a shocker. We're just going to look at six verses today. Romans 7 is, is one of those passages that, um, well, it's, it's hotly disputed. It's um, been studied and argued and written about um, by people far and wide trying to grasp Paul's argument in Romans 7. And so we're going to take this week and next week uh, to break it down. And uh, specifically, we'll get into the, um, uh, the, the, the meat of Romans 7 next week. We're going to look kind of at the introduction. It's going to be a little bit of an excursus because we're going to talk about the Mosaic Law a little bit and how it's relevant to us here and now. Um, but I invite you to open your Bibles with me as we look at uh, the verse 6 verses here in Romans 7. By way of review, remember that we are in this middle section of Romans, uh, really beginning kind of really in chapter 5, most specifically in chapter 6, where Paul has moved from justification, how we are made right with God, to sanctification, the progress, the growth, the pattern of the Christian life in obedience. And we have noted, uh, as we've made our way through this section, that sanctification flows out of justification. We are justified by faith alone, and it's on that basis from which then we walk in obedience. And we can't reverse that. If we reverse that, we've got Roman Catholicism. Or if we confuse those, we lose the gospel as well. We, don't, we are not saved, we're not justified by becoming more holy. Uh, rather, we become more holy in the Christian life on the basis of that forgiveness and cleansing and righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ, received by faith alone. And this growth in sanctification is rooted ultimately in our union with Christ. United with Him in His death and resurrection, He is our federal head, and that is then what leads to growth and obedience in the Christian life. The Christian life is one of union with Jesus Christ, and we're going to consider that here in a moment today. It is likened to a marriage. We are married to Jesus Christ in that sense, and we share the benefits that He earned and secured by His life and death and resurrection. We saw as well that we who were once slaves to sin and death, we were formerly married to Adam and his sinfulness. But now in Christ we are slaves to God. This is what we looked at two weeks ago. Cody taught us from Romans chapter 6, the end of it. We are slaves to God unto righteousness and life in Jesus Christ. So, Today, we're going to look at some of the questions and implications of this. What then is our motivation for righteous living? We, we've you know, considered that a few weeks already, but it's a continuing kind of Paul keeps piling up argument after argument after argument to, to, to direct us properly into the, or I should say, to direct us into the proper motivation for the Christian life. You know, if we're not motivated to obey so that by our obedience we save ourselves, if we're already saved apart from our good works or obedience, then, then what motivates us to obey? 
I think of this sometimes in terms, you, you hear a lot of uh, discussion nowadays, nowadays about capitalism and about socialism and, and you know, um, the structure of society and dealing with equalities. And, and one of the, the benefits of capitalism, without getting too political here, is the proper motivation it provides. So often we look at nowadays at, you know, the outcome of, 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 of policies and structures within our um, um, a political and economic realm, whereas the appeal of capitalism is the motivation. What motivates somebody to work hard? If everything's equally distributed, you lose incentive to work hard. Yes, that's a political statement, but uh, I'm using it just as an illustration. Well, Paul here is kind of considering in the same respect. What motivates us to work hard in the Christian life? If everything's already given to us, doesn't that seem to you know, undermine incentive to, to live holy lives? That's what we're going to consider a little bit today and next week. Um, we're continuing also to ask this question, answer this question, what's the power for Christian living? Not just what motivates us, but, but how do we actually make progress? How is it possible? And in this respect, what is the role of the law now that we've been delivered from it as a covenant of works? Um, this is really more for next week, but I mean, we're going to begin to answer that question today. The role, what is the role of the law? And we can look at the law from, or we are going to look at the law from many different standpoints. What's the role of the Mosaic Covenant? The Old Testament law. What's the role of the law in general? Any command, any law of God, whether Old Testament or New Testament. What is its role? What is its purpose? What is, it function? what is its function in the Christian life? If we've been delivered from it, if our obedience doesn't matter in the realm of justification, what does it matter? How does it play? What role does it play in our lives? So that's what we're looking at today. And uh, just to kind of give you a little thesis of what I'm going to argue uh, what I believe we see from the text today, is that in Christ, uh, via our justification by faith, we have a completely new relationship and a new allegiance. That's not groundbreaking. But here there is a legal and yet personal, very personal, relationship with Jesus that's as all-encompassing as marriage. And while the power of sin is the law, again, we're going to look at that most specifically next week, Paul says that the power of sin is the law, the law is transformed in the Christian life from a foe to a friend, even as it remains the power of sin. That's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to consider. So, uh, let's go ahead and read. Verses 1 through 6, and may I ask for a volunteer. Uh, Romans 7, 1 through 6, if you would uh, read it loud and clear. Volunteer. Karen?
marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Thank you. In the eyes of God, marriage is an indissoluble bond. Right? Marriage is something that two people are united into one flesh. It is unbreakable. Um, and I'm not entering into you know questions of adultery and abandonment, which um, I believe Scripture says are legitimate grounds to break that bond. But in general, marriage is an unbreakable bond. And so Paul uses that illustration, as he does elsewhere, to speak of the believer's new relationship with Jesus Christ. As long as a person is alive, and this in this sense is in Adam. If you are bound to Adam, this is going back to chapter 5. You are married to the law. Now, I want you to, we're going to come back to this, but just note the fact that um, he says, as long as someone is alive. He's, he's putting everybody, Jew and Gentile, under this category of married to Adam. And if you're married to Adam, you're married to the law. Don't ever listen to people who say, well, you're a Gentile. You're not an Israelite. The Old Testament is for Israelites. You have no relation with that law. It means nothing to you. If you are alive, you're married to the law. Being married to the law means that you're subject to the law's obligations. You're subject to the law's demands. You're subject to the law's punishments and condemnation. The soul that sins shall die, the law says. Do this and live, the law says. Everyone in Adam who is alive is bound to the law. But, verse 3 and 4, if, using the analogy, the husband dies, there's a break of the marriage relationship. If there is a death, that person who is alive is now free from that law. And they can marry another. So you, if you have died with Christ, that relationship with the law that you had has been broken. It's been severed. Which means, in some respect, you're not subject to the law's obligation, demands, condemnation, or punishment. I'm going to explain that. But the relationship has been broken. That's the 
That's the best picture I could find for remarriage. So take two. (laughs) In Christ, in union with Christ, the law no longer has claim over us because our sins are forgiven. Right? Our breaking of the law, that has been paid for. And Christ's obedience as keeping the law perfectly is credited to our account. So God treats us as if we had never broken the law and yet had all, have always perpetually, personally obeyed it. In Christ, we are dead to the law and we are married to another. This is the, the new relationship, the new allegiance that I spoke of earlier. We're married to Jesus Christ. So with that kind of you know, summary, opening statement, um, some questions for you. What exactly does it mean, died to the law? Um, Does it mean that we have died to the Mosaic law? Only. Right? The Old Testament. Paul is saying you've died to the Old Testament. Throw out the Old Testament. None of it matters anymore. That relationship has been severed. And now, obey the New Testament. And what it commands of you. There are a lot of people who argue this. Is that what it means? Does it mean that we've died to any and all of the law entirely as if we are free to live as we please? Well, the law has no, you know, whether it's the Old Testament law or whether it's the New Testament law, since we're forgiven, since we're righteous in Christ, we can live however we please. I mean, that might bring shame. You know, I had someone tell me one time, Brandon, you were there, um, <laughs> who said, there's nothing I can do to displease God. There's a pastor told, uh, told me this. Um, there's nothing I can do to ple- displease God. I'm righteous in Him. I'm forgiven and free. It doesn't matter how I live. If I want to disobey the law, that's fine. It doesn't disappoint Him. But it does bring shame and, honor, uh, shame and dishonor to His name. So, you know, that's why, you know, it does bring temporal consequences, so that's why we obey. Is that true? Which I would argue is antinomianism. What does it mean, die of the law? Anyone want to take a gander? Mark? Good answer. Ooh, interesting. Wow. Mark is, Mark is on track here. Yeah. Chandler? Sounds like you're, you're summarizing Romans 3.31. 
do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Huh. Okay. Well, Chandler is right. Mark, you're right as well. But Chandler is right in that our confession speaks to this. And so, um, I want to point you to chapter 19. I'm going to um, cite a paragraph of it in just a second. Uh, of our confession. And I don't know if this is a point that... Uh, the, the the section that you were referring to, Chandler, but it speaks very clearly about this. And what I want you to see is that there is a distinction between the law as a covenant and the law as a rule. This is a, a classic Reformed doctrine. Um, it's, it's ecumenical in the sense of, of within the Reformed tradition, it's widespread. Whether Presbyterian, whether Church of England, Anglican of, of the old sort, whether Reformed Baptist, there is a distinction between the law as a covenant and the law as a rule. As a covenant, the law demands perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. Personal, it has to be you. It can't be, you know, someone for you. In the sense of like a family member. It has to be perfect without fail. And it has to be perpetually without ever ceasing. As the covenant, as a covenant, the law demands perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. But as a rule, this is different. How does it function as a rule? I'm going to read the confession to you. It's lengthy. But listen to this. Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works, do this and live, to be justified or condemned, right? We don't obey in order to be justified. Yet it is of great use to them and others in that it serves as a rule of life. It informs us of the will of God and our duty and directs us and binds us to walk accordingly. So the law is a means by which we can look and see what is the will of God for our life. And what has God called us to as his children. And even if we think about the fact that the law represents the righteousness of uh, 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 the nature, the attributes of God. Right? The law calls us, us to, to walk justly. Well, God is a God of justice. The law calls us to love our neighbor because God himself has loved us. God, uh, the law calls us, you know, thou shalt not steal, but, thou, you know, but work hard so that you have something to share because God himself doesn't steal, but he gives to us. Right? So the law, uh, being a reflection of the character of God, informs us of God's will for our lives. And it binds us in that sense. It calls us to walk accordingly. The law also discovers, unveils, exposes the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives. So as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin. So the law as a rule 
reveals areas of our heart and lives that are sinful, that we might confess our sins and receive the promise of forgiveness in the gospel. Right? And this is what we're going to get into next week. Paul in the latter part of Romans 7 says, um, I wouldn't even know covetousness if the law hadn't said, thou shalt not covet. I mean, covetousness feels natural. It, it's kind of inherent to being human. We want things that, we, our eyes you know, are set upon things that oftentimes are good things, but we want them with, with sinful passions. And, and there's no way to know that that's sin unless the law comes and says, hey, thou shalt not covet. Particularly because covetousness is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of, okay, well, you killed your neighbor. That's pretty objective, right? That's bad. Covetousness, oftentimes, nobody sees. Nobody can see if you're covetousness or not. Sometimes it comes out in greed or extortion or, or you know, um, thievery. But ultimately, the sin itself is a matter of the heart, and, and nobody can see it. So the law reveals this sinfulness in our hearts so that we might be humbled by it, so that we might lay it before the Lord and receive, uh, uh, confess and receive forgiveness. The law also serves for a clear sight of the need that they have for Christ and the perfection of His obedience. Notice the, the twofold phrase there. Our need for Christ. I cannot obey the law. I need a righteousness outside of myself. I need another in my place. So as we are constantly exposed to the law, we should constantly always be reminded of our need for Christ. And that serves for greater love for Him, adoration for Him, service to Him. But also it's highlighted the perfection of His obedience. When we give ourselves to the Christian life and we get in the trenches and we realize, wow, Righteous living is so difficult. It's so hard to obey. It's so hard to, to live a righteous life, particularly on the inside. That adores to us the perfection of His righteousness. Jesus Christ never uttered one sinful word. How is that even possible? Well, when we see the law, we, real, we really see the beauty of His righteousness, the perfection of who He is, and the fact that He's ours. It's amazing. It likewise used to uh, restrain sin in that it forbids sin. So uh, maybe this in respect would be like uh, some of the threatenings of the law. Um, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, um, that you may live long on the earth. Uh, Ephesians 6.4. Um, in some sense, you know, there's a, there's a promise held out to that obedience to that command. And there's, in some sense, a, a threat as well, because, you know, you might be cut off for disobeying your parents. Right? You reap what you sow. So in some sense, uh, it restrains our sin because it warns us of the consequences of sin. So 
Sexually immoral. Don't you know you sin against your own body, Paul says. You're destroying your own body when you're sexually immoral. That should serve to restrain some of our sin, knowing that 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 sin leads to destructiveness and, and that it restrains us. It keeps us from from um, unrestrained living in that respect. Um, expanding upon this, I just mentioned it, but it says it explicitly here. Uh, the threatening serve to show what our sins deserve, what affliction in life we might get for our sins, even though we're we're freed from the curse and and. Uh, ooh, an allied, I don't know if that's spelled right, I, I just copied and pasted from the document, but we're free from the curse and the, and the rigor thereof. So even though we're free from the curse of the law, we still can experience the consequences of breaking the law in this life. That's how it helps to forbid sin, restrain sin. And in the same respect, the promises show obedience and the blessings that we can expect upon the obedience the performance of them even though we're not obeying according to a covenant of works Uh, there are real practical benefits and blessings to obedience even though it means nothing in regards to our eternal justification or eternal standing before god but the law shows us in that respect that we can expect some practical earthly blessings from our obedience to the law. This is, again, all this is how it serves as a rule. So as man's doing and refraining from evil, because the law encourages to the one and deters from the other, is no evidence of being under the law and not under grace. This is kind of a summary statement by the confession here. If you obey the law because you hope for, for um, blessing and you, dis, and you refrain from disobeying the law because you're fearful of its cursing, doesn't mean that you're living as though you're under law, not under grace. Because this is how the law serves as a rule even though it does not serve as a covenant of works over us. Um, Questions or comments or thoughts at this point? Mark? That's a great analogy. The scriptures often use, hold on, Mitch. That's a great analogy the scripture often uses the relationship of a father and a child. 
to refer to our relationship with God. You know, when a child disobeys, hopefully the child isn't fearful that he's now going to be kicked out of the home and, and cut off from that relationship. But at times he will obey because he wants his father's pleasure, uh, uh, to experience his father's pleasure, his father's um, 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 joy in his obedience. And sometimes he, he doesn't disobey because he's fearful of the father's chastening, even though he knows that his relationship with his father is not built upon his obedience. It's built upon family. So a child looks to please his father. We look to please our heavenly father, knowing that even when we disobey, that relationship is not severed. Mitch? Yeah, and that's, uh, that's where Paul's going in the second half of the chapter, which we'll look at next week. But in, yes, he says the power of sin is the law. Um, the law, in how it exposes who we are, in how it, it, it curbs our natural sinful passions, serves to, um, to stimulate and to heighten sin in us. Uh, heighten our propensity towards it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, and now they want to touch it. Yeah. So you know, um, uh, I'm going to illustrate this next week with a with a picture. You know, if you're you're at a night like maybe you're at the Biltmore, like the Brinkleys are today, and uh, you see a sign that says, you know, don't walk on the grass and. Typically, you know, or, 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 you know, or maybe there's a, particularly in the Biltmore, maybe there's a room that's got, you know, a rope that says, you know, do not enter. And you're like, ooh, I wonder what's, what's back there, right? Is there something I'm missing? And our natural tendency then, we start thinking about that. And, and, it, it, and, it, and we can become consumed with, I really want to see what's behind the curtain here. Um, because I've been told not to. Uh, but again, now we're going to talk about next week. Paul says the law is not sin. He says it's righteous, it's good, it's holy. And I delight in the law of God in my inward being. So, so there is this, the regenerate nature, the new life that, that, that Paul has in Christ, he says, leads me to delight in the law. I love thy law. But he recognizes there's still a war going on. That in a sinful flesh, the law still serves to heightened sin for him. So, great question. As you can see, it's such a controversial and difficult issue, I've got to devote all of next week to it. Um, at this point, and I've got to move quickly here. I'm halfway through my slides and we only have 15 minutes. Um, at this point, I want to again go back, again, to the relationship between Adam and Moses. If you don't get this, you won't understand this section. You won't understand what the confession means when it talks about the difference between a covenant and a rule. God gave Adam a covenant of works. Do this and live. Don't eat of this tree or you will die. The same covenant of works 
was given to Israel at Mount Sinai, codified in the Ten Commandments. Go back to chapter 19 of the Confession if you want to read about this in more detail. And the moral law, in this sense, continues to bind everyone at all times. Now, what do I mean by that? Again, um, well, let me explain it with my slides. <laughs> um, you might notice that there's several different uses of the law throughout Romans 7, and in Scripture in general. Sometimes it refers to the law of Moses, narrowly speaking. Uh, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly the reference, but I, uh, I'm recalling a, a statement in Acts where uh, Peter says, um, Christ freed us from um, the demand and burden of the law. Uh, let's not bind upon people um, the law. All right. Now I regret trying to, trying to remember what it says. Basically, he says, you know, we're talking about the relation of the Gentiles to the law. He says, look, our forefathers could not bear the burden of the law. Let's not place that upon the Gentiles either. Sometimes the law refers to just the law of Moses. But sometimes, though, it speaks of a general principle, like in 721. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. This is general principle. How can he say that? Well, because that law of Moses is in some sense inherent in creation. Inherent in Paul's sinfulness. Humanity's sinfulness. Sometimes it can refer to a power or a force. 7.23 I see in my members, my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Sometimes it just refers to the law of God in general, Old Testament or New Testament, anything that God commands. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am under the flesh, sold under sin. The law in general is spiritual because spiritual means it comes from God. If God said in the New Covenant, uh, the New Testament, um, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. It's a spiritual command. It's the law. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, brethren. That is a law. That is a command. It's only in the New Testament. It comes from God. It's spiritual. So, this is why when we speak of a perpetual moral law of God, there are clear parallels. Parallels between the law given in Adam... The law given to Moses and the law given to us in the New Testament. There's parallels, there's overlap. There's continuity. Thou shalt not murder, you know, was just as perpetually binding to Adam, or maybe to Cain and Abel, as it was, you know, in the, in the sixth commandment, as it is to now in the New Covenant. That's because it's based upon the character and nature of God. It's based upon His justice as well. It never changes. So, I know this is a lot. Hang with me here. Legalism, obeying in order to earn a right standing with God, 
or antinomianism, not caring how we obey because it supposedly doesn't matter, doesn't concern which law to obey. Right? I've had many people say, well, your confession of faith upholds the Ten Commandments as the duty of the Christian life. That's legalism, because that's the Old Testament. And when you call people to obey the Fourth Commandment especially, that's really what they mean, because all the others are pretty easy, right? No other gods before me, graven images, thou shalt not murder, commit that. Everyone agrees that. But when you get to the Fourth, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, and we start saying, okay, well, I mean, there is a duty written in the moral law that's, that's revealed in creation of, of, of one day that is to be set aside for the worship of God. People say, oh, that's legalist. It's legalism. I'm arguing legalism or antinomy doesn't concern which law to obey necessarily. They concern primarily our relationship to the law. Any law. You can be a legalist in striving to obey. Do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together. Or rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Just as much as you can be a legalist for saying, well, you have to keep the Sabbath based upon the fourth commandment. Same thing for antinomianism. It doesn't matter which law we're talking about. It's your relationship to the law that's where those things are are, are truly found. All right, so that's why, because of this relationship between Adam, Moses, and the New Covenant, in the very same breath, Scripture can say, you're not under the law, but under grace. In Christ, you're free from the law of Moses. And yet... Paul can then turn around in Romans 13 and cite the Mosaic law and say the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Don't you see here? He can say we're free from the law of Moses, and yet he turns around and gives the law of Moses and says this is how you obey. Because it's not necessarily focused on which law, it's on our relationship to the law. In the Christian life, what has changed is the covenant that we are under. Not necessarily the specific commands, even though, yes, the old covenant has passed away, we are under no obligation to keep um, those ceremonial and political aspects of that law, the moral substance of the law continues. And our relationship to it has changed, and that's what Paul is bringing out here. So, five minutes to conclude, and then you can throw your questions at me. Um, I just want to come back to this metaphor We are married to Jesus Christ. And it's an incredible uh, metaphor when we think about it. Marriage is legal and yet it's personal. It's binding and it's covenantal. You have obligations and yet, yet love is at the heart of it. 
When we are married, everything in our life changes. Our freedom, our lack of, our responsibilities, as well as our acceptance and our security and our comforts. In marriage, you can't just simply live as you choose. But united to Jesus Christ, we've died to the the law in order that we might bear fruit to God. We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Think about that statement. We were delivered not to live as we please, but to in order to bear fruit. And we still serve, we still serve the law in some respect. But we do so in the new way of the Spirit. That was the prom- that is the promise of the new covenant. I will write my law upon your heart. It's not just going to be in this old written code anymore, external to you. I'm going to write it on your heart. I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. The same law goes from external to internal in the new covenant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so to conclude, what is the power and incentive and motivation for obedience in Christ? It's the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. We don't become obsessed with the law and walking in obedience to the law. We become enamored with Jesus Christ. And it's out of love for our spouse that we give ourselves to walking in obedience to Christ's commands. And so only when we break away from from works righteousness, where we try to obey the law in order to earn our place from God, with God. Only when we are released from the guilt-producing condemnation of the law, which we can never live up to. Only then, with this power of sin broken, with a covenant of works um, fulfilled in Christ, only then will the righteousness that we have in Him motivate us to obey the law out of love out of gratitude, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So there we have union with Christ leads us to serve the one we're married to out of a heart of love. We get pleasure, as in any good marriage, of serving and giving ourselves to the one we love simply because we love them. The law also shows us the way we honor and serve the one we love. We walk in his steps. With the law being removed as a burden, we have this new framework of joy and obedience in the Christian life. And in this respect, we primarily have changed. Not necessarily the law itself. Yes, there's all sorts of Old Testament commands that have no bearing upon us. But the moral substance of the command of, of the law, the morality of it that's based upon the character of God, that's revealed in creation, that's revealed in the Ten Commandments, that's revealed in the various commands of the New Testament, all that remains the same. It's our relationship to it that has changed. And so let us look in that respect to who we are married to in Christ and give ourselves in obedience to the law out of our love for him. And he laughs, whew, thanks for letting me get through that. See, see now why I chose to not 
cover the next 20 verses. <laughs> um, I had some discussion points, but we don't have time for that. Um, and I forgot next week is our fellowship breakfast, so we'll look at the rest of the chapter in two weeks. Any last questions or comments? Karen? The law is no longer our master, um, but <laughs> anyone have some suggestions? <laughs> what? Teacher? Teacher? The law is no longer our master, so what is it then? If we were to summarize it in one phrase. You of all people should know this, Cody. Not from the hand of a judge, but from the hand of Christ, our spouse, out of the love of the Heavenly Father. Very good. Um, if you have anything else, feel free to come. You know, we got 10 minutes before worship, but let's, uh, let's close in prayer.